Well, as our kids are going, there's a man named Raphael Winter. I mentioned him back when we did this book in 2009. His goal back in 2009 was to visit every single Starbucks store on the planet. Interesting goal, isn't it? Now, back then, we tried to figure out exactly. He wanted to, you know, tour everything. Now, he was, he was a Brit, and so he was trying to tour everyone in the UK. And then he wanted to go to the, US, the United States, and then he wanted to go uh, into the, the entire world. The problem was, back in 2009, Starbucks was adding stores at the rate of 15 per week. And so what we tried to figure out at that time was, was this even going to be possible for Raphael to be able to accomplish his goal? And we realized the, the vanity of it. Now, I'm going to have to sort of pace myself to not talk over here because they're... <laughs> so this is kind of nice. There we are. How is everybody? Good. We're doing well. Very nicely. I just realized, like, hmm. You're going to have to take our word for those of you at home. For those of you at home... There we go. <laughs> At that point, though, there were 10,000 Starbucks stores in the United States, 15 more every week, and there's a certain sense of his goal kind of feeling like that song we talked about last week, right? You're getting closer and closer to your destination, but the speed limit keeps changing, so you have to slow down. You're always an hour away in life. So far, that's kind of been the vibe of the book of Ecclesiastes, right? Death and time and the sense that if we're going to try to pursue some sort of meaning under the sun, that we have to go to the things that make us happy or the things that make us feel fulfilled, like work and wine and women and song and all of those kinds of things. And the truth is, they don't work. Like the song, like Raphael's quest. The problem is, by the way, here, um, there are still uh, 2,000 more stores that Starbucks is adding between now and 2025. So Raphael's quest, by the way, has just gotten worse, in case you're wondering what actually has happened to him. That's the way it's been feeling for me, at least, as we've gone through this book for two weeks. As we think about the fact that we're going to die, that time is incredibly forgetful, it can be a little bit disheartening. And so the author, the one who has put together everything in the book of Ecclesiastes, who spoke in the beginning and said, I want to introduce you to a guy named the preacher or the teacher or the convener, somebody who's going to get people together. And in Israel's day, those were always kings. Those were always king-like leaders who were going to bring and gather the people together. And so this preacher seems to be writing with the voice of kind of an ideal king. One a lot like Solomon. One that also seems to incorporate some of the experiences of Hezekiah and Josiah and others. But those that have been able to really sort of stand out as kings, accomplish as kings... What would have happened if they wrote at the end of their lives and said, let us tell you everything we've learned? So far, the voice would sound something like this. Death is going to forget you. Time is always going to outpace you. And so if you're going to try and find meaning under the sun, you should just abandon your quest to make yourself happy or to be able to do work that's permanent because those won't happen. Here's the problem. 
what we're going to encounter today gets a little worse. And that's because what he's going to do for us in four sort of vignettes, four little what feel to me like those moments when you read those short stories in middle school, if you ever went through that kind of season, right? Where, you know, you'd, you'd, we, we had our literature class, our English class, and maybe you enjoyed novels, or, but there's always a moment where you were going to do that short story section, right? And there were some short stories that were pointed this way or that way, but there were always some really dark ones. There were some dark, disturbing short stories I remember reading and thinking, why did you ask us to read this? I can't stop thinking about it. And the teacher's like, ah, that's why it is there. What we're going to look at in chapters 3 and 4 and 8 and 9 in the book of Ecclesiastes is going to feel kind of like four short stories. It's not exactly that he's going to tell you four stories necessarily. He's going to talk about life and what he sees. And he's going to end each one of them with one of these really despairing kind of conclusions. Now, remember, though, the book of Ecclesiastes is kind of like asking a question of some newfangled flashlight. Does it work? Let's go out all the way into the deepest dark of the woods, get really far away and see, will this flashlight actually be able to illuminate some stuff? Let's then also bring it out into the daylight and see if can you actually see the power of this flashlight in kind of both situations. The, the preacher has already said, let's take it up against the best and the brightest the world has to offer. Uh, there we are. But today we're going into the pitch black. We're going to deal with injustice, evil. We're going to deal with the kind of problem that has been popular, not just in our day. This voice is loud right now in our culture. And it starts and sounds something like this. I can't worship a God who would. And usually it's followed up by some sort of an injustice because people can't square with the idea that God knows what ought to be done could do something about it, and yet is good when sometimes he chooses not to. Those are three realities that the world can't square up against. Job's going to help us with that, just so you know, in a couple weeks. But the world is so, in some ways, I'm just going to use this phrase, hell-bound in their pursuit of getting their hands around a God that they can comprehend that there, there is a loud voice right now saying that if things like the Holocaust could happen, if things like mass genocide could happen, if things like the abuse of children could happen, then I can't accept a God who would be smart enough, powerful enough, and still be good if we look through human history and we see that problem. That's where the preacher goes. So just be warned Four very dark kind of stories. And they're going to explore these kinds of problems. Wickedness over justice. Silence over oppression. Impotence amidst the government. And then mortality gets back to death again. Despite your morality. Thank you guys for populating this side, by the way. It's nice. I can now turn. There we go. So those are just previews, so to speak, of these four little stories that we're going to take a look at. And if you feel at the end, like, dude, you're going dark. He is. There's a handout you got with your bulletin. That'll be the moment we turn on the flashlight. All right? 
But for a little bit, we're going to click off the light and we're going to stumble through the woods with him. All right? So let's, let's take a, a kind of a, a deep breath and just plunge into the darkness because what we're going to see first and foremost is that in the place of justice, instead there's wickedness. That's our first point. It says, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there, wickedness. See where I got the title? Mm-hmm. But also in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So in other words, in the legal system where things ought to be just, nope, it doesn't work. And even in the religious situation where things ought to be righteous, nope, even there, there's wickedness. These stories bother us, don't they? There's the two old man on the plane stories, if you've ever heard one of these. One is there's an old man, he's in, uh, he's in the plane and he's getting in with his wife and he's got the luggage and everything around him and he's fumbling with things and he's trying to, you know, get there and, and there's, there's a lady next to him and she's just frustrated with all this commotion, you know. She got on the plane, she had her window seat, everything was supposed to be good. Well, this old man is making a mess and he just, she finally just says, would you please stop it? And He feels shamed and everybody's quiet. You know, if you've ever been in a moment like that, you don't know what to do. And so the old man sits down. A little while later when the, uh, you know, when the the stewardesses are coming through, they're asking if, and he said, I'd like a glass of champagne for myself and my wife and I'd like the bottle, please. Well, get the champagne. He stands up and says, "I I would like to make a toast. My wife and I plan to go on a trip for all of our married years. And now, after 60 years of marriage, we're able to enjoy this trip today. We're so grateful to be here. We're sorry for the commotion. But I would like to toast my wife, dings his glass to her, takes a sip, and then takes the rest of the bottle of champagne and pours it over the lady's head. And the plane erupts and, First old man on the plane story, right? Deeply satisfying. Another old man on the plane story, similar situation, except for in this case, the man's alone. He's on the plane. He's getting in, and he's a little, he's a little disheveled. He's a little bit less than kempt. And as it would turn out, he's sitting next to someone who's very high and very mighty and very put together. And at some point, that guy kind of, you know, being bothered by being next to this guy, goes to a stewardess and says, could... Could you please find a new seat for me? This is not what I paid for. This is and the stewardess looks and sees and says, I am so sorry for the situation you're in. Let me go see if I can work something out. Goes, talks to the pilot, comes back and says, I just wanted to say, I am so sorry you've had to sit next to such a horrible person. We have a space for you in first class. And the gentleman starts to stand up and she said, oh, no, 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 I was talking to you. He gets the old man and takes the old man over. Both situations, the kind of things that you don't like the story. Why? Because there's a clear evil. There's a clear good. There's a villain. There's a victim. And in the end of the day, the victim is honored, right? Not so here. This is the old, that's outrageous section of the Reader's Digest. 
That's what he's seeing and saying, things should be just, but they're wicked. Things should be righteous, but they're wicked. And I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they, them see, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. See, I thought he was going a different direction with this. I thought he was saying, well, you know, God is just asking us to be patient and God's going to bring everything and make everything right. But that's not the way this is going. The preacher starts to stumble into the woods and say, no, God's just testing people. He wants them to see that they're really no different from animals. When you watch a BBC special, do you think about the integrity and the innocence of the antelope or the integrity and the innocence of the lion going after? No. That could be an evil lion, or it could be a good antelope. You really don't know because you really don't care. You're just worried, interested, what's going to happen? That's because they're beasts. We don't think about morality with their situation. We just think about strength. Well, that's what's happening with the children of man. Also, verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust, and to dust all return. And here's as dark as he gets. First story, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? That's dark. The preacher, in a Christian sermon from the Bible, is saying, you are no different than a dead dog. And I can't prove that your soul or spirit's going someplace different than whatever happened to the life of that dead dog. Why? It's because where things should be right by the preacher's moral calculus, and not just his, by our moral way of reckoning with the world, when things ought to be right, if we never see rightness accomplished, something's broken. We know something's broken, and it leads us to some dark places. His place your life means nothing more than the ant squished on the sidewalk. It was alive, it's dead, turns into dust. Guess what? That happens to you. Anything else happen beyond that? I might think that if I could see that God's doing good in the world, but if I don't see that God's doing good in the world, I abandon all hope that he's got anything good going on. May the Lord bless you and keep you clean. First dark story. Second dark story continues right after. We're going to start into chapter four. Because here it's not just in light of this, you know, where there ought to be righteousness and justice, there's wickedness. But when people see something, they ought to say something about it. So in light of oppression, what he also witnesses is silence. Who's going to say something about this? Nobody says nothing. Second point. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power and there was no one to comfort them. Doesn't that bother you? The reason we like the two old men and the plain stories is because somebody speaks up for them. Somebody does something. Somebody sees and says something. 
Now, in one case, it's him getting his own revenge. In another, though, it's the, it's the steward is coming in as the voice of reason and righteousness, right? But what about when nobody says anything? What about when you hear a story that somebody tells from their past and you realize they've been living under the weight and the shame of that all their lives and nobody's been able to ever speak to it and say, that wasn't your fault. That isn't what God's like. That's not the way the world ought to be. It is broken and Jesus came to address that. If nobody's ever spoken to that ever, what about those people that live with that lie their whole lives? Doesn't that leave you in a little bit of a dark place? The book of Ecclesiastes says it should. In the face of oppression, there's silence. And here's where it takes him. I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who were still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. This is the voice of suicide. Death is better than life. This is the dark place that the preacher gets to and leads us to. He's coming and saying, this is the way things feel. Isn't it? I mean, honestly, isn't it? Have you ever been here? It may not feel like the darkest story, but the darkness of it is so personal that sometimes it's hard to see any light through it. What happened to you, you know is unjust. And even when you tried to ask for help, you were blamed, you were ignored, just silence. The preacher's saying that should bother us. That should bother us so deeply that there is a truth in this that is true in the level of despair under the sun, right? So all the disclaimers, there's a logic here. If there's no hope, if there's no righteousness, if there's no voice, if there's no advocate, then there's a logic to longing for death. What this guy's arrived at already here, and we're just down two of the four stories so far, is almost the opposite of Genesis 1 and 2. What happened in Genesis 1 and 2? There's nothing but chaos. God speaks to the chaos and brings order, names it, organizes it, brings life to it, and declares it to be good. The life that God brings is good. It's the beginning premise of the Bible. But the, the dark conclusion of the preacher is God screwed up. If this kind of wickedness can exist on this planet, then God must not have done good in bringing life because better are those who never live than those who live and have to deal with this. I told you. Now we're not turning the light on yet, but we're only halfway in. Third story, we're going to skip ahead to chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 2. 
gets to the concept of whether or not people can bring about real change in the light of what we're talking about. The third category is that despite the goals of government, there's still impotence. Haven't we felt this? Listen to the way he goes. Now, this is, this is kind of long. I'm going to read to you for a little bit, all right? I say, he says, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does what he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So he acknowledges government power. And in, in this particular case, in this, you know, being under a king, it, an absolutely unchallengeable amount of power. So he continues in verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it will be, for who can tell him how it will be? No, so he's acknowledging a little bit of the whole purpose of government is to try to reward good and punish evil. There are mysteries that, that the government has to deal with in the middle of this. And he continues in verse 8, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There's no just charge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the, the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city when they had done such things. This is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner, verse 12, does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear him but there's a vanity that takes place on the earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said that this also is vanity. Now, did you, did you feel his confusion a little bit in trying to describe things through those 14 verses? 13 technically, I guess. He's trying to say, the government's here. It's got power and good intentions. And there are some times that it seems to work. But here's the problem. The government isn't omnipotent. There are things outside of our control. And you can feel the limits of those who are in power. Because sometimes wicked people go and seem right. And they don't get punished for it. And at the very end of the day, sometimes when good people are suffering, they don't get righteousness and justice for it. So it's not just this principle of wickedness in the place of justice or wickedness in the place of righteousness. It's that there are people, sometimes with power, who don't even, like even the king with unchallengeable power, don't have capacity to really do what they're in place of doing. So despite all the government's goals... They're impotent. Now, that's one thing for us to be saying. It's another thing for the preacher who assumes the role of this tyrannical king to be saying. This is the preacher's autobiography from the place of being a sovereign ruler and saying, I can do 
whatever I want. And you know what I can't do? Make things right. I can't. This is wisdom, but dark wisdom. Does government exist for the purposes that God set it up? Yep. Paul tells us, the preacher just told us. God has his designs, but people aren't God, and governments aren't always good. And even when governments are trying to be good, there's this mixed bag. Did you have trouble following his, his train of thought through this a little bit? It's like he was trying to say, we're really trying to do good, but there's limits. But we're trying to do good, but there's limits. And sometimes it's just broken, and honestly, you know, never mind. This is all vanity. Vapors, meaningless, futile. Why do we even give power to people if they can't make things good? Third step into the darkness. The last is that everybody wants to assume that like in a good story, the darkness is going to come to the climax, the moment where it seems like darkness wins, but we know the hero will ride in. We know that everything's going to come. We know that the dawn will arrive in the story, and what's been tense and broken and beaten, it's going to be made right in the end, right? Sorry. With all that good and evil, fourth point, death. Sometimes the story ends, often the story ends unresolved. So it's not just that wicked people reign for a little while, and if we measure it over the course of our life, or even a, a term of a familial life, or even a society, it's not always that the, the wicked get punished in the end. In fact, it rarely happens that way. That's his point. I saw, but all this I laid to heart, Examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to them all. Also, the hearts of children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts when they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know when they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them who is forgotten, and their love, and their hate, and their envy of this perished and forget what they got. No, just forget it, people. Do you hear this guy at the end? He doesn't even know what to make of this. He's telling the truth, but he's having the hardest time coming with any conclusions that have any hope to him. He's gotten so far lost in the forest, he's just looking and saying, I don't get it. The big problem, wickedness and oppression are ruling over righteousness and justice, and I don't get it. People are silent, governments are impotent, and at the end of the day, I'm longing for the story to be made right. I'm longing for some broad narrative to tell me that this is going to work out. But my friend suffered and died. My family has been, been beaten down for such a long time. The children of Israel were in slavery for 400 years. 
Our country is not that old. These are the narratives of many of the people that have existed within his worldview, and he doesn't even know history the way we do. And more than that, he doesn't know your history, and that's where it gets harder. Because truth is, most apostasy doesn't happen because of global suffering. That bothers us. It happens. The question is, can I follow a God who oversees this universe? And this is where wise people turn to fools. When they hear and see what we try to protect our kids from, and then they grow up and they get hurt. They grow up and they start becoming smart. They have eyes and they ears and they read things. And we're like, yeah, this is the world we've brought you into. We're, we're, we're so sorry. Josiah was born 10 days after 9-11. That was a crisis for us. Not because we were having trouble with, a, a, you know, a 10-day-old. He was a little challenging, but it was this, this is our world. But then when we really were honest, we realized that 9-11 wasn't the greatest tragedy human history has ever seen. It was one of them. And rather than just from a Western perspective, where it was the worst thing ever, it was minor compared to what many have endured. And that's the world we were bringing our kids into. And that's a hard reality for us to square up with. But if we can't just teach our children to be wise in the little hot house of like our homeschool environment or our world where we can tell them what's real and tell them what's not real, if we want them to be wise in the real world that's out there under the sun in the curse with the thorns and the thistles and the injustice and the oppression, then the question is, what is going to happen? Because this is where he ends. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. Like, what? 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 Now, I don't know if you've sat down over these last few weeks and just read through Ecclesiastes cover to cover. What you'll notice is this kind of an insertion. We're going to look at that next week. Different spots throughout this book, this guy gets even more confusing because he tells you some of the darkest stuff and then says, but this is still good and you should enjoy it. So there's wickedness and oppression and silence and impotence over the face of the earth and oftentimes it's unresolved before people die. Now, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. I don't see how that's possible, but thanks for the encouragement there, preacher. That is the way that this book is written. There, this is a theme throughout it that he'll visit dark places and then come back and say, this is still enjoyable in the midst of this. I don't know how to give you everything about it, but a piece of wisdom is that there are things to enjoy in the middle of what can be so dark and so despairing. So, while kind of 
keeping our finger on this verse and saying, telling you that's a teaser for what we're going to talk about next week where we're going to try and understand a little bit of what does even the preacher offer. We're going to kind of put our bookmark here for a little bit, come back to this, and then ask this question. Does the Bible speak about injustice at all? It does. The full gospel is not entirely available in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not. But the, what we want to do coming out of this is I want to I take us for a minute, and this is where part of our, our handout, you don't have to follow along with every one of these verses. If any of these resonate with you, we've just kind of given this to you so that you've got it. I'll, uh, for those of you who hate paper, we'll put it in the email as well so you've got a digital copy of it. But the question is what to do in this dark. Can light really shine in this kind of darkness? And you can think about that, like I said, two different ways. Globally, with the fact that this happens kind of everywhere in all ages. Or personally. Where you have been wronged, and you haven't seen justice, you haven't been able to take revenge, and you've entrusted yourself to a God who, you says, who he says will take care of things. But the question is, how do I believe that? And still take a step tomorrow in through this darkness if it doesn't feel like you shine the light on the entire path. But I get enough to just not stumble over this next log theologically. What if God only lets me have light but not the full story? What, what is it that we do? Here's the first thing. Don't jump off the ledge. Remember the analogy that I, I gave you last week from the Bible Project? I love that analogy. They said it's almost like the whole scope of the book of Ecclesiastes is walking around on life and saying, death and time, and there's nothing joyful. And here he's just said, chance and oppression and wickedness. Do you see it? I'm like, yes. And he just said, no, 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 stay back, stay back, stay back. Wisdom is understanding this is here, but not jumping into it. Wisdom is remembering we live here. This is true. But like the Grand Canyon, it's best appreciated from the top. Try not to jump. Try not to give yourself into this despair. Now, you may say, well, actually, I see the logic of everything he said so far. So I, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's good. That's only point one. Point one is don't jump. All right. But the second point is this. Let's not, because of all the other stuff that we're going to say, let's not wink at the injustices of life. Let's remember, the wisest one who came to the earth was the Son of God. He was the wisest one who saw everything, who because of his nature as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, was aware of not just what was happening in his country, in his day, but what had happened, of course, of the history of the children of man. And when he arrived on the planet as the wisest one, he saw suffering and helped. But more than that, sometimes he saw wickedness and stood up to it. So while our third point's going to be that we don't have to worry, the second point here is we don't wink at injustice. We don't look at it and just say, oh, you know, whatever. Instead, remember, Jesus said in John chapter 2, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. You know where I'm getting that from. That's where Jesus is tipping over tables. Jesus is seeing that the poor are being oppressed. What's happening is happening in the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are supposed to be gathered to the house of prayer. Jesus is seeing that they're being abused. Their place of privilege is being used for, for making the, the in crowd more wealthy. And Jesus comes along and says, no. That's the second thing we want to remember. Where we have capacity to do something, we should do something. And despite the fact that we can all take apart our government at any level and expose its impotence, we still are given the privilege of being able to work in it. Some to be able to actually work as members of the government. But Others to be able to say, look, I can at least help choose the kind of people that I want who will either perpetuate injustice or will solve it. And I think it's a great standard to ask, what are the great injustices of our world and how can they be solved? And then to ask, okay, so what can be done? Well, why don't use this pulpit to tell you much, but if you don't know, there's an issue that's being voted on here pretty soon. Question is, can we change the church constitution, or the church constitution, the state constitution? We can change the church constitution, but just so you know, it requires a pretty significant vote for us to be able to make changes to our church constitution. The problem is, in the state of Ohio, it only takes one more vote than 50% in order to make changes to the state constitution. And it turns out that those who would like to make abortion constitutionally legal in Ohio are putting an amendment together. So... Some have said, well, all right. We see that you have the right to be able to put that to a vote. We'd like to change the Constitution, though, so that you need to not just be able to amend it by 50 plus 1, but at a 60% level, which frankly just makes sense. If you have a governing document for, for who you are, it probably makes sense to get more than just half of everybody to think that that should be changed. That's a battle that's coming. It's going to be waged in our country on August the 8th. Seems a good thing to get involved in. And that will not be the last issue that you ever have to think in these terms of what is just, what is unjust, what's righteous, what's wicked. How can I support those that are righteous? Now, just as confusing as that conversation was about government, our conversations about government have been pretty confusing as well. But let's never let some of the micro nuances of that conversation get in the way of this main point. You can do something about what's wrong and it's probably best to do it. So don't jump, don't wink, but thirdly, don't worry. Jumping would probably mean something like, I'm just going to abandon any hope, and I'm just going to be anxious and fretting over this all the time. But instead of worrying, what we're called to do is to pray. Remember the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 about a woman who was coming to a judge that wasn't righteous? And in the end of the day, he did the right thing. Why? Not because he had a change of heart. Not because the Grinch's heart grew three sizes that day. It was because this lady bugged him. And Jesus says, my father's so very different as a judge than that. But that's the example I want you to have. 
Rather than worrying about stuff, bug him. That's the son. The son came as a delegate of the father to say, bug me. Bug me like her. Because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. So I, I have to ask hard questions for me. How bothersome are my prayers? How continual are my prayers? And how selfish versus righteous are my prayers. Because I can bother God by my continual coming for my selfish prayers, and those probably don't seem to really fit the whole point of this parable. But I can bother God by my perpetual coming over prayers about justice, and it feels like I'm obeying what Jesus has told us to do. So don't jump, don't wink, don't worry. But instead, pray. The fourth point is, don't forget, you're Christians, people. Your injustice is not the great injustice of human history. The great injustice of human history is still not to come in the future. It is already taking place. It was when the innocent son of God came to the earth and was slaughtered as a criminal. Mocked and naked and scorned because he had come up with a deal with his father that he would be treated as though he had perpetuated every injustice in human history up till that point and every injustice that would be paid later on. That means this one thing. Why is it that I can wait whenever I feel like I've been, you know, wronged? Because all the ways that I have been, I have done wrong have been covered by Jesus. Or let me at least warn you, if they have not been covered by Jesus, his indifference, not in his indifference, his long-suffering does not endure forever. There may come a day when the righteous judge arrives and where the disposition is now different. He says, I have waited and I've waited long enough, but it is time for this day. And on that day, all injustice will either be dealt with by Jesus, the righteous judge, at that moment, or by Jesus, the righteous judge, 2,000 years ago on the cross. All injustice dealt by Jesus, either back then or on that day. Do you understand the implications of that? It means the sin against you has either been forgiven by Jesus or will be repaid by Jesus. And it's not your business to accomplish what he has promised to complete. That's why we can wait. That's why we say we don't repay. That's why we don't worry, but we pray. That's why we do what we can, but we don't have to get revenge because vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. The same comfort for us in life and death that our sins have been placed on Jesus is ultimately our great comfort in life and death when we think about how we've been sinned against. Now we want to plead that people would repent. We want to plead that they put their hope in Jesus and that they would be forgiven for those sins. But it does mean that death, this under the sunness of death as the preacher sees it, is an incomplete narrative. 
there's a bigger story than the story of our lives. And it's the story of human history. It's when Jesus will repay what he has not forgiven. So we can't forget about this great injustice. Listen to a man named Octavius Winslow as he tries to help us with this. Once more, he says, heed the exhortation. Stand close to the cross of Jesus. It is the most accessible and precious spot this side of heaven, the most solemn and awesome one this side of eternity. Stand by it in suffering, in persecution, in temptation. Stand by it on the brightness of prosperity and in the gloom of adversity. Shrink not from its offense, humiliation, and woe. Defend it when scorned, despised, and denied. Stand up for Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. Oh, whatever you do or whatever you endure, be loyal to Christ's cross. Go to it in trouble, repair to it in weakness, cling to it in danger, hide beneath it when the wintry storm rushes fiercely over you. Near to the cross, you are near a father's heart, a savior's side. What that does is it takes out of my hand the I could never worship a God who runs the universe according to my calculations because the cross and the cross alone blows my calculations completely out of the water. If the best good he could do was done by the greatest injustice ever, then I have to take my hands off of the demands that this preacher is making. That's a hard work. And we've got four weeks in Job to help us do that. But the fifth thing that we want to remember is this. And the fifth one, sorry, this feels a little bit like a test in middle school. It has a few parts to it as well. So I told you five points, but there's a few subs. Just listen to them and don't worry. They're on here. Don't fail, though, to see how God is using injustice in your life today. It's not just that we have future hope. Future hope helps us today. But don't fail to see how God is using the unfairness of life today. Because it may be that if we could see all this, we might at the end of it say, I was glad God did that that way, though it hurt because of what he got done. Listen to a few of these. God uses injustice to prove your faith as genuine. 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to these words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Five verses so far, that sounds wonderful, except for that word guarded, which sounds a little bit ominous, and he's right. Because he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Why does Jesus bring in bad times that he'll ultimately repay? It's because he's doing a testing in us that couldn't be accomplished without it. It's the only heat sometimes that softens a scaly heart. And at times we need those scales purged and banged away and removed. Second thing that we don't want to fail to see is that God uses injustice to accent the greatness of his glory. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God, right? Romans chapter 8, great truths. But if we're children, then we're heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed with us. You see, what Jesus is doing in us when we suffer is he's taking away our demands that suffering can't exist. Because if you have a demand that suffering can't exist, you know what you're doing. You are denying the gospel. If there is a hard and fast rule that for God to be good, God's people can't suffer, then you're saying this is a complete waste of time. That Jesus coming to earth was a failed experiment because he suffered even though he deserved good. Do you want to make that statement? Probably not. Therefore, you can't make that statement about you. And Jesus uses the difficulties of our life in order to be able to magnify the way that his glory has been put on display. So he uses it to test. He uses it to accent what is ultimately his great plan. Thirdly, he uses injustice to highlight his justice and his mercy. Because God's justice is so intricately interwoven with his mercy that it makes it very difficult for us to see his glory trying to separate out all the threads without just unraveling his character. Listen to the way that, that this is described. This is in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? How do I become righteousness? How, I get the righteousness of God through my obedience, Right? No, that is every other religion, every other failed religion on the planet. You get your righteousness through how you behave. That's not Christianity. You get righteousness through how you believe. How's that fair? Well, let them continue. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. And that was to show his righteousness as the present time so that he may be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how you got saved. Get that? All right, a lot of fancy language there and good language to dive into, but it basically means this. Is God just? No, he can't be because he declared I'm just and I know that I'm not just. Yeah, but that's the whole calculus of Christianity is that you became righteous by believing that Jesus was able to do something about you without you doing anything about you. You can do stuff later, but that's not how it starts. How does that make any sense? Well, there's a lot more to say about this, but let me tell you this. If you stand up as Lord over justice in your life, if you stand over the trivialities of our lives in comparison to the great glory, and we say, oh God, you are unjust because you haven't done something about this. God looks at us and says, okay, could you just, just define something? One thing for me. 
What are the great sins that I have to repay and the great sins that I can't repay? What are the ones I'm supposed to show mercy for like yours? And what are the ones that I'm supposed to pay back like theirs? See, the way that God does this isn't their sins versus our sins. That's the pharisaical approach to life. The reality is God deals with sins in mysterious ways where he is just and justifier, where he is righteous and long-suffering. And if we're going to believe that that's true for us, how dare we say that can't be true for others? That's sometimes why we suffer. If for no other reason to be able to remember that we've caused suffering for others. And that the same mercy can apply to both situations. Those are hard things to learn, aren't they? That we would be tested. That God uses justice in ways that we don't really understand in all of salvation history. And that the mercy he's bestowed to us is so powerful that it actually is very equivalent to what we realize ought to be given to somebody else. If we really are going to believe this mercy stuff works. Lastly, how does God use suffering? He uses it to bring us into his presence. We forget him so much. And suffering got us home. Last verse. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. That's what suffering is ultimately done in this world. And if without suffering, we wouldn't have come to Christ, we got to be careful before we want to rewrite the way the world works so that there is no suffering at all. The God we worship is not the God you can judge. If he were, we couldn't worship him. But that's what we want to do, is take what the preacher has said, enter into the darkness with him, realize how difficult this world is to live in at so many different levels because of what we've done in others, and yet say, God still is redeeming it. Those are tough things to do. I do hope that this little handout kind of helps you in that process. And some of that sets the tone for how we're going to get to that verse 7. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. But that's also a teaser for next week. Till then, let's stand and I'm going to pray for us. Father, we are eager to believe this more than we do. I can believe that you're merciful over my sins. I can believe that you're merciful over worldly sins. It is hard for me to see how it's fair for you to be merciful against those who have sinned against me. It's hard to watch a world in pain. And so I pray that you'd help us to do something about the pain while we trust that you're at work. Not to get vengeance but to bring repentance. And we want to be agents of your mercy and your kindness and your grace.
And so I pray that you would work deep and deeper faith in us so that we could trust you when life doesn't seem fair. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.